according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we are examining the witness of Simeon and Anna from verses 22 through 38. Or you can outline it with 25 through 38 or different things. Simeon is introduced in verse 25 and we see him on down through verse 35, 11 total verses. And then Anna gets three verses, verses 36, 37, and 38. In preparation for our study, let's say time for silent prayer to assure that our time is focused on his word, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to assemble together this morning, and we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to uh, have a place where we may assemble in freedom. We thank you for the blessings we have of the living and abiding Word of God, the technology you've blessed us with, that we not only have Bibles available to us, but we have study tools, we have software, we have so many resources, Father, that... that uh, you have blessed us with abundantly. We recognize that to whom much is given, much shall be required. We recognize that we have Bible study tools in this generation that previous generations could never have even dreamed possible. So, Father, we ask for faithfulness. We ask for diligence. We ask for um, your working in and through us for your good pleasure. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, as we examine the witness of Simeon and Anna... We understand the context for this is the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ at the temple. And in our outline last week, we focused on this. Joseph and Mary were careful to obey all their angelic instructions and observe all Mosaic law commandments. And uh, this is something that we observe here, that it was a priority for his parents. Obviously, he's an infant. He's a newborn. Uh, he is not making the volitional choices at this point to obey the law or to uh, fulfill prophecies, but his parents are, and they are making volitional choices to be obedient. And so we observe in verse 21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So there is obedience to the angelic instruction in the naming him of Jesus. There is also obedience of the Mosaic law in his circumcision on the eighth day, and then on his presentation to the Lord, the dedication offering that has to occur. We spent some time on this last week. And I'll just rapidly pass through these slides here this morning. They circumcised him on the eighth day. It was a stipulation in the uh, Abrahamic covenant going back to Genesis chapter 17. And it was codified in Mosaic law. And the explanation there coming on in Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 3. Thirdly, they brought their first fruit offerings to the Lord. And for this, we spent some time in Exodus 13. We spent some time in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. I think the importance on that, for a number of different reasons, but ultimately you look at it and you see the the uh, options that were there for bringing the offering. And we recognize that in Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary are bringing the two birds, as it says here in verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We recognize that Mary and Joseph are here with very humble means and that they are here offering the least um, expensive of the options that they have available to them. 
Under point two, we have two servants that are standing by at the temple to testify to the birth of Messiah. And these are servants of the Lord. These are the witnesses that he has designated to observe this particular event. He has uh, servants... Uh, standing by in the fields, and so he calls the shepherds to come into Jerusalem, uh, to come into Bethlehem, and to observe the baby there. Now he has servants in the temple that are going to observe this step of the of the life of Christ. Everything in his life is being documented. Everything in his Christ is being in his life is being observed, being witnessed, being testified to, because certainly the adversary will try at every opportunity to cast doubts upon everything. They'll try to cast doubt upon where he was born. They try to cast doubt upon uh, his parents and, and all these things. And so the Father is providing witnesses for every step of the way. And believe me, if they could uh, doubt any part of his claim to the Davidic throne, any part of his claim to his lineage, or any part of his claim at any step, they would clearly have done so. And the, 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 I think the brilliant nature of the Father's plan up to the, the resurrection and beyond is that there were so many eyewitnesses. As Paul pointed out, the, the witnesses to the resurrection, over 500 at one event, many of whom were still alive at the point of time that Paul was writing 1 Corinthians. So if any, uh, if any eyewitnesses could step forward and dispute the observations, uh, they were certainly welcome to do so, but the fact is that no one could because these things were so very well attested. All right, now as we develop this, uh, we left off dealing with Simeon last week, and we should get right back into him and the material there, and then move on to the witness of Anna and uh, what she has to say here in her message. Uh, but ultimately, the bulk of this passage is focused on Simeon, and so that's where most of our study will be this morning. Now, verse 25 gives his description. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It's a significant explanation, a significant introduction to a man that is otherwise unknown. We'll spend some time this morning giving some of the legends, some of the apocryphal stories with regard to Simeon, and yet they don't... um, they don't stand the test uh, of the initial presentation here or elsewhere in the New Testament where such a character could be uh, developed. He's simply not developed in those terms. All right, He's introduced here as a previously unknown character, and that is exactly what he is. Now, his description is threefold, and I fixed the glitch last week that put him up all at once, but I'll go ahead and put him up one at a time all at once <laughs> for you to look at. Subpoint A, righteous and devout. Subpoint B, looking for the consolation of Israel. And subpoint C, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Each one of these is a significant description of Simeon. So as we're dealing with this, and for those that are listening on tape and don't have the advantage of looking at the screen or seeing the outline, um, subpoint A now is Simeon. This is under point two, the two witnesses were waiting for him at the temple. Point A now being Simeon, point B shortly will be Anna. But uh, as we deal with Simeon in verses 25 through 35, we have now, first of all, subpoint one, his description in verse 25, which is broken down into those three elements. Righteous and devout. Dikaios kai eulabes. And these terms indicate not only that he is a born-again believer, but that he is uh, participating actively in the Christian way of life, that he is growing in the grace and knowledge, that he is walking in the light, that he is serious about his Christian uh, Christian walk. He is devout. He is devout. 
And as we've, I think in times past, <clears throat> done studies on devotion in the Gospel of John, I seem to recall one there, and I believe we also did a study on devotion. I'm forgetting now, it was either Jacob or David, one of those Wednesday morning classes. The idea of devotion meaning that this is something that you sacrifice other things for. If you are devoted to golf, well then you will sacrifice other things in order to preserve your your time set aside for your devotion to golf. You're devoted to bowling, you're devoted to baseball, you're devoted to whatever. If it is a true devotion, then you sacrifice other things for it. See, if you're devoted to your family, then you will sacrifice other things because your family has priority. And if, if there's a conflict, then the item you're devoted to is the item that you will sacrifice for in order to spend time in that area. Otherwise, it's not a devotion. See, well, a devotion can be in, uh, you can be devoted to wrong objects, you can be devoted to idols, you can be devoted to false religions, false gods, and so forth. But for a believer described with this pairing of adjectives that he is righteous and devout, we recognize that he is, under positional truth, a born-again believer. He, that's the only way to have righteousness. But then secondly, under experiential sanctification, that he is walking in the light. He is devout. And we have... The concept to this very day, we all know believers that are born again, they're saved, they're going to be in heaven when they die, but for the present time, they're not in the word of God, they're not walking in the light, they're not uh, pursuing the Christian way of life. So to give it a biblical term, we say they're not eulabase, they are not devout, whereas Simeon was. Now the second description, looking for the consolation of Israel, looking for the paraclesis of Israel is quite remarkable. A lot of people are looking for the Messiah. A lot of people are looking for um, deliverance. Anna herself is described in this passage as uh, she's ministering to people that are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. All right, There's a lot of people that are looking at the world politically. See, and Anna has an opportunity to minister spiritually to a whole crowd that are looking at things politically. And we'll see that when we break down Anna's ministry here at the end of this study. But um, Simeon, you'll notice, is looking for consolation. He's looking for comfort. He is looking for, ultimately speaking, the role of the Holy Spirit. And I hope last week when we, when we spent the time to go to jo- uh, the book of Joel, chapter 2, and we spent the time to examine the nature of that promise, that hopefully these things were, uh, were clear. And uh, if not, then I'll be glad to address this, uh, maybe if we have time at the end of this hour to take questions and so forth. But that phrase being so unique, and the understanding of the Holy Spirit being so um, finite within the stewardship of Israel, very few believers ever experienced the Holy Spirit, even once in their life. Simeon uh, experienced the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says the Holy Spirit was upon him and that he was also looking for the paraclesis, which is a spirit ministry, uh, the, the paraclesis of Israel, which we now understand to be second advent. Simeon had no way to know that. He's looking for the uh, the Joel 2 fulfillment and has no way to know that the uh, the first advent is going to precede it and that there's going to be a church age in between and then that the second advent would occur and then the millennial kingdom can begin. So I find these things to be extraordinary and we'll come to more of these concepts throughout 
uh, the ministry because the disciples got thrown with this. The disciples were absolutely uh, confused over some of these things. And then finally, after the resurrection, they're coming to Christ and saying, Okay, now, Lord, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? All right? <laughs> we, we went through all of this. We went through the cross. We went through all this. Now is it the time? And the Lord says, It's not for you to know the time. It's not for me to know the time. The Father has that. And then he ascended into heaven, and the apostles then uh, were ushered into the church age, as we say. So these are the descriptions of Simeon from verse 25. Point two, his promise. His promise is just as significant, or perhaps more so, than his description. Verse 26 reveals his promise. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's, that's Jehovah's, or maybe not, I need to look that up, the Lord's anointed. Actually, it's not Jehovah's, it's despot, and we'll deal with that here in a moment. Alright, but this is his promise. Now, this didn't come from a priest, this didn't come from another prophet, this came from the Lord himself. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he is spirit-filled and also receiving spirit messages or prophecies. The verse does, the, the passage nowhere calls him a prophetes, does not say Simeon is a prophet, but it does everything short of that, and I have no problem calling him a prophet in, uh, in this regard. Now, this is interesting in and of itself because we have no way of knowing how old he is. We have no way of knowing. It doesn't say what date this prophecy was given. It has. It does not tell us these circumstances. But it is similar to other places in the gospel record. And let's just, for the moment, look at a couple of those. In uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, we have the promise that's made there, and then likewise. Uh, immediately prior to the Mount of Transfiguration, we have the uh, the message there. So let's look at, um, and I guess we can do these in, in either order, but let's go to the end of the Gospel of John and examine that. John 21, all right, in John 21... And a legend that then developed out of a message that the Lord had to Peter about John. Alright. And the Lord is uh, talking to Peter here with the great Do You Love Me message in verses 15 and following. And then he has a message with respect to Peter and uh, a prophecy and about the rest of Peter's life in verses 18 and 19. And then in verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John never names himself in his own gospel record. And we, we understand that this to be the apostle John himself, the author of the gospel. And uh, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Okay, He'd had a message about his own life, and now he wants to know about John. And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, the Lord is telling Peter here, That's not your business. <laughs> it's, uh, What is that to you? You follow me. 
And uh, there's, in fact, the language there being quite similar to what we'll see at the first miracle in John chapter 2 when Christ turned the water to wine and his mother's saying, you know, hey, son, they have no wine. And Jesus says, what is that to me and to you? Um, there is a, a principle that we should be serving the Lord, keeping our eyes on him and not minding everybody else's business in a lot of ways. And the Lord's telling Peter this. He says, look, my message is for you about your calling, your ministry, your life, your martyrdom, as it were. And uh, John's is not your concern. He says, in fact, if I want John to live until the second advent, that's not your business either. Now, conceivably, John could still be walking this earth today, 2,000 years later. <laughs> Somehow, all right? At whatever age, he you know, must have some kind of age uh, retardation or some point there, because, you know, otherwise, how would a 2,000-year-old man walk? But that's not the point. The point is, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. But now notice in verse 23, Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. See, a legend grew out of it. Because of this message to Peter, a legend grew out of it. Now, by the time John sat down to write his gospel... Forty years have gone by. All right. Fifty years have gone by. We're not entirely certain when the Gospel of John was written, but in all likelihood it was after uh, uh, Peter and Paul are, are gone, after Jerusalem's destroyed perhaps. This is in the mid-80s, 90s A.D. This is, you know, we tend to date Revelation at 96 A.D. So say this is in the 70s or 80s A.D. and so forth. John's an old man at this point. John is getting quite elderly at this point. And uh, you can imagine, he's the last of the living apostles, and all the others have died, and, and these stories start getting told. These legends start growing. Hey, Christ said that, that John was going to live until Christ returned. That's the legend anyway. That's not true. And John points that out here, that the saying developed, but it's not true. The saying went out among the brethren that this, that disciple would not die yet that's not what jesus said see he only said it's none of your business <laughs> all right so this is how these stories can then grow and for um for john that was the case there so it's it's interesting to see with respect to um uh simeon here in the temple when he gets a message that uh, he's not going to die until he sees the Christ. Well, it's understandable that such legends will then start growing. I find it interesting, though, that nowhere, as I return back to Luke, nowhere does this text mention that he shared that story with anybody. <laughs> In other words, who knows about this promise other than Simeon and the Holy Spirit who told him? There's no indication that he went and spotlighted it to everybody that he uh, had received such a message and all of the legends about Simeon came out after um, after Luke's gospel most of the legends that we have with respect or all of the legends that we have with respect to Simeon uh, follow the gospel of Luke and we'll we'll highlight this for you here in a moment all right other items the um, the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, I think, is interesting. So let's look at that. The um, Because 
Christ made a promise there too that they would see the kingdom and then he took them to the Mount of Transfiguration and they got to see the kingdom. Okay? And this is off the top of my head here this morning. Where is the Mount of Transfiguration? It's in... I like the Matthew record. I like... I thought there was a Luke record of it too, but I guess I'll find the Matthew record. Luke 9? Chapter 9. Okay, right there. And perfect. Because as the Lord is teaching, and He tells them they have to take up their cross. He tells them if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you're going to lose your life for His sake, you'll save it. There's some teaching that goes into there that we'll spend some time with. And then... Uh, Verse 26, Whatever, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the, the Father and of the holy angels. It's interesting the reward that we can gain for faithfully serving, but then also the shame that we can stack up for ourselves if uh, we function in shame here in this life. And these are things that we looked at in our Judgment Seat of Christ series some time back. Then verse 27, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Alright? Now he's talking to twelve disciples there. And so you can imagine rumors, and you start imagining, wow, we're going to live, we're going to see the kingdom of God. Well, eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And there he unfolded for them in a vision the kingdom of God. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Interesting. They are speaking to him about the pending crucifixion. All right. Then it goes on. We'll do the rest of this at a later point of time. But these are the similar passages, the promise right before transfiguration and then the the message to Peter with respect to John. Now, when we come back to chapter 2, we see his specific promise with Simeon in verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. All right. And that's the promise there. It does not say that he that it was then um, spread to the brethren, that it was then announced to the priesthood, that it was then uh, made known to all the nation of Israel. Uh, this is just his personal message. And then under point three, the legends that then grew. Legends that then grew. I think through all of these accounts, the text specifically says, like with the shepherds, they came, they saw, then they went out and started spreading stories everywhere. Okay, like with um, with uh, Anna here, that uh, she she came, she saw, and then she went and began teaching. Okay, and the story spread. It's not declared that way in verse 26, and I find that to be significant because it departs from the other locations where Luke is very clear that these stories started spreading. All right, legends about Simeon. 
And these are all post-Gospel of Luke sources. All right? There's a apocryphal book called the Protoevangelum of James. All right? The Protoevangelum of James. We have this Gospel of James about the infancy of, of Christ. Not biblical. Not uh, never never accepted by any of the early church as being biblical. Just part of the apocrypha, part of these fanciful legends that then uh, grew up. Okay. I just figured out part of my confusion. <laughs> I have different notes here than I have on the screen. And I didn't anticipate that was going to be a problem until just now. I realized it when Bob was resetting the computer and then figured, well, that won't be a problem. I'll just read the screen. In the Protoevangelum of James, for example, chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, the statement is made that this particular Simeon was high priest. Okay? That he was high priest and he was the successor of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Alright, now here's a legend. Here's a story. Now, it's not supported biblically by anything. And it's not supported historically by anything. But it does draw elements from the Gospel of Luke, for example. It draws from the Zechariah's narrative of chapter 1. It draws from the inclusion of the, the, the name or the appearance of Simeon in chapter 2. And then it embellishes. <laughs> and then it crafts. And then it grows. And so we have the story here. There is nothing in this passage that indicates that he's a high priest. You know, if so, we would read in verse 25, and, you know, they come into the temple, and they offer their offering, and the high priest at the time, <laughs> Simeon, the son of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, came out, and it had been revealed to him. No, there's none of that. Okay? He's introduced in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This is introducing a previously unknown character. An unrelated character to the uh, to the narrative up to this point. Okay. The second apocryphal work, the Acts of Pilate, chapter seventeen and verse one. Again, these aren't Bible books. We don't accept them as being books of the Bible. The church never has accepted these as being books of the Bible. Although the Roman church in later centuries started to adopt a couple of apocryphal works, a handful of them. They needed those for some of their other traditions. These are not among those. The Acts of Pilate, chapter 17 and verse 1, uh, includes additional stories following this event of the adult Jesus uh, in his ministry, later raising Simeon's two sons from the dead. All right, stories of uh, later in Christ's ministry that he later rose, uh, resurrected two of Simeon's sons. Now, there's possibility for something like that because the Bible tells us that Christ did many things that aren't recorded in the Gospels. That if if everything Christ ever did was written down, the whole world couldn't hold the books. He did so many miracles. He did so many things that what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is only a portion of what he did. And so... 
it's conceivable that, that something like that could have happened. But it's also conceivable that because of that, lots of legends and lots of stories and lots of myths then grew up in the uh, early centuries of the church. It's interesting to note that these apocryphal books are dated centuries after the, the actual gospel events. <laughs> you know, that most of the apocryphal books came up in the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries A.D., some of them as late as the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries A.D., and, uh, you know, when, when, a, when a tradition gets launched at that late date, how in the world can you have any claim to legitimacy? Finally, then, under subpoint C, with reference to Cutler, who was a respected scholar, he um, wrote in the Journal of Bible and Religion back in 1966, he identifies this Simeon with the Simeon that was the son of Hillel and the father of Gamaliel the Elder. So he makes him the son of Hillel and the father of Gamaliel the Elder. And we've done some studies on Gamaliel in Sunday night in the Book of Acts series that Warren Dowd has been teaching. And there were two Gamaliels. There was a father and a son, Gamaliel the Elder and Gamaliel the, the Younger, or the son. And um, Cutler in his scholarship has done some work to try to identify Simeon with uh, this particular Simeon. And, and you can't dispute the fact that there was a Simeon that was in between those two generations, but other than coincidence, there's no way to identify those names. And it's not like Simeon was an uncommon name. A whole tribe was named Simeon, and it was a rather common name. In fact, the apostle, uh, the form of Simon, the apostle Peter, was Simon Peter, and Simon, simply the Greek form of Simeon, it was really a common name. So identifying him as uh, one of the great Pharisees of Judaic uh, history is... Uh, not very likely, but again, this is part of the mythology that has arisen around a man that's told he can't die. <laughs> All right? I mean, if you knew for a fact that you couldn't physically die, what would you start doing? <laughs> you know, you can go step in front of a bus, you could jump off a cliff, you could, I mean, you can't die, right? Well, it doesn't mean you're Superman and bulletproof, it just means you can't die. <laughs> so, um, you can imagine. It, it, it gets fanciful, it gets... It gets uh, Really quite interesting. In this case, though, for a man who is righteous and devout, and he receives a message that he's not going to die until he sees the Christ. All right, this is not, uh, you know, not a, a, a license to go stepping in front of buses. This is an excitement that for 400 years there have been no prophets. For 400 years since Malachi, there have been no prophets, but now he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's given a prophetic message, he's told that his generation will see the Christ. That's extraordinary. And that's why here he is at the temple and uh, waiting to uh, give forth the message, and that's what we have here next. Point four. Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and blessed God. Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and blessed God. In verse 28, he blessed God. It says, he took him into his arms and blessed God. Now, blessings and cursings are an interesting study. God himself blesses. He is the source of all blessings. 
And yet he has provided us with the capacity also to issue forth blessings. We can bless one another. We can bless other people. We can bless, conceivably, we could bless things. Um, But most of all, we are provided the capacity to issue blessings for the purpose of blessing God himself. And this is what we do when we offer up thanksgiving and praise. This is our activity of blessing. And we have the verbal capacity to do so, the mental capacity to do so, the spiritual capacity to do so. And so we bless God. Now, we can't create, we can't cause to come into existence. When God blesses, he causes those blessings to occur. When God blesses us, for example, see, God blessed me with a godly wife. He blessed me with believing children. He blessed me with a local church ministry. Many blessings that come from the source of God, they come as he decrees them. All right. Now, we can bless back, but I can't cause things to come into existence. <laughs> right? My words don't don't make things happen other than the fact that when my words are uh, formulated in a prayer request, what then happens? As God provides, God answers prayer. Okay? So, when we recognize human blessing is significantly different from divine blessing, we still can identify what that human blessing is and where it has its source. It has its source in God's blessing. It has its source in God's provision. I can't bless whom God curses, for example. And Balaam pointed that out to Balak. <laughs> when, when Balak kept trying to hire him to curse Israel, and, and Balaam says, you know, all I can do is bless Israel. Because God has blessed Israel. And since God has blessed Israel, I can't now come out and, and utter forth a curse, contrary to what God has blessed. Okay. Likewise, if I have a prayer request for somebody, and it's contrary to the will of God, I can't bless somebody in spite of what God is doing, see. So, these things become interesting. Now, he blessed God. He eulogized God, if we transliterate the term, eulogesen ton theon. And I'll spell that out for you here. I thought I had put it on the slide, but I guess not. It's uh, eulogeo is the verb. In the text, it appears like this. Eulogesen ton theon. All right. Get my accents right. Eulogesen ton theon. Now, this is the verb, and this is the object of the verb. Simeon is doing the blessing, and God is the object of that verb, the recipient of the activity. Simeon is blessing God. And that's backwards in our way of thinking, isn't it? Because God blesses man. What can I, what can I give God? You know? <laughs> it's like Christmas shopping for somebody who has everything. What do you do? How do you give a gift to somebody who has everything? Okay? In the case of God, He is the source of all blessings. How do I bless the source of all blessings? Well, I can only do so in the means that He supplies. In the means that he supplies. Now, eulogeo is the verb. E-U-L-O-G-E-O. And that's how you'll find it in the, in the lexicons. E-U-L-O-G-E-O. And you see right away, this is where we get the English word of eulogy. Right? 
where I give a eulogy or I eulogize somebody. Logos is a word. You is good or well. So this is a good word. If you get up to eulogize somebody, you're given a good word about them. Okay? Whether it's true or not. <laughs> Even if you're making something up so you can say nice things about a dead guy. Right? That's a eulogy. In common terms. So saying good things about somebody is a eulogy. Now, we do this for God when we praise His name, when we thank Him, when we declare His glory, as it's being done here. We, fortunately, we have the text of what He says. Now, Lord, You're releasing Your bondservant to depart in peace according to Your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light, a revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. When you say good things about God, you are praising Him. You are thanking Him. And you are, I don't want to say validating, but you are relating His works. As Christ said on the cross, I will tell of your deeds to the assembly. You are declaring what God has done, and that gives Him glory. Because you are ascribing to Him the glory due His name. You are crediting to Him the actions that He has undertaken. And so you declare what God has done. A thanksgiving declares what God has done. Thank you, Father, for... A, B, C, D, and E. And these are the things you have done. And I can't claim credit for these. You have done these. And this provides a blessing for God. This is described as a blessing for God. Something that, as a part of His creation, He has designed volitional creatures. He has given angels and mankind volitional capacity Volitional capacity to serve. Volitional capacity to rebel. Volitional capacity to praise. And you know what? He gave us a tongue, and the book of James says, with that very same tongue, what can we do? We can bless or we can curse. It's the same tongue. That's why it's such a hard animal to get a leash around, you know? It's a hard thing to control. And it's why it's so dangerous. And yet why it's such a delight when we use it for His glory. Okay, and uh, when it comes to expressions, when it comes to verbal communication, think about all the variety. Think about, take any, any statement and think about all the ways that you can say that statement. <laughs> and sometimes we even rehearse. Different things. If we anticipate it's going to be tough to say, you know. Um, you're nervous about a job interview and you're worried about what you're going to say. And so you rehearse what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. Or uh, you're trying to ask your boss for a, a day off and so you kind of rehearse, well, how am I going to say it? How am I going to make this sell? <laughs> All right. Or you're, uh, you're, you're going to propose to the woman you want to marry and you run it through your mind a hundred times how you're going to say it. Okay, and you think, well, I could say it this way, I could say it that way, I could kind of modify my timing, I could, uh, you know, 
I could compose it in a poem. I could write a song. I could, you know. There's no end to the variety. I could propose in English. I could propose in French. I could propose in Greek. You know, when it comes to verbal communication, the method and the means, the, the, the variations are, are endless. When it comes to praise, the variations are endless. Am I going to write a hymn? Am I going to sing a song? How am I going to thank him? How am I going to praise him? And so, the idea of blessing is not only thanking and not only praising, but doing so in my own way, in my own terms, in my own, from my own love. Okay? And I'm not going to write a poem because that would be phony and that's not my way. <laughs> and God knows that. God knows I'm the least poetic person in the history of mankind. And He knows that because that's the way He made me. So if I try to compose a poem, it's just going to be phony, and he knows that. But if I just come to him in, in simplicity and thankfulness and thank him, that's the way he made me, that's the way my love motivates me to, to offer up the praise, then that has value. Because it's coming as a part of the want-tos. How do I want to say it? How do I want to thank him? All right, And this is why the, the verbal communication of blessing and thanksgiving, or, or praise and thanksgiving, is truly a blessing because God receives the, the free will, volitional statement of love. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And just as a mother, a parent, a wife, I mean, you... you you appreciate it when your husband, when your son, when your child comes to you and, and, and from their own free will, from their own volition, praises you or thanks you. Not because they're made to do it. That has no value at all. But when they want to do it, that has value. And so here is the nature of praise. Okay, We have this, by the way, another side trip in Hebrews 13. This is part of our priesthood in, in the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. This is our offering. This is our sacrifice. I notice nobody brought a goat this morning or a bull or a lamb, which is a good thing. We don't have an altar really prepared. There's a table up here. I wouldn't call that an altar. We don't have any wood. We don't have any fire. And, you know, if you took a knife and killed an animal in here, just make a great big mess. That's not our sacrifice. Our sacrifice is described here. And we have an altar, it says in Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have the presence of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Father. Notice verse 15, Through Him then, that's through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. This is our sacrifice. And it's defined, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. This is a sacrifice in the priesthood of the church-age believer. The church-age believer priest in Christ. With Christ as our high priest in the heavenly places. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The benefit that we can supply to our fellow believers in Christ, doing good and sharing, that becomes a sacrifice. You're not just blessing a fellow believer, but you're blessing the Father because you're offering up the sweet-smelling savor. Obey your leaders. Oops, I guess I better stop there. <laughs> Don't want to get to that verse, and you might think I'm, I'm 
pushing my authority or something. All right? But it's part of the sacrifice. It's a part of the priesthood. It's a part of believers functioning in grace in the Melchizedek priesthood of the church age. So Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and blessed God. Point five, Simeon's message is referred to as the nunc dimittis. That's Latin. Simeon's message is referred to as the nunc dimittis, verses 29 through 35. All of these early messages in the Gospel of Luke all have Latin titles attached to them, like the Magnificat we looked at in Mary's song back in chapter 1. Each of these messages has its own name in the Latin, coming essentially from the Vulgate. All right. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. Do I have? No, I don't. Maybe I do. Yeah, I do. It just comes from the Vulgate, from the first two words of this particular song. Simeon's message is referred to as the Nunc Dimittis, verses 29 through 35. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Now, Lord, basically it's Latin for now, Lord, or now you are dismissing, actually. Now you are dismissing. Now you are dismissing. Luke chapter 2 and verse 29. And we'll pull up the Vulgate. Nunc Dimittis. Servum tuum domine. I don't read Latin. <laughs> All right. I'm not a Latin scholar. But now releasing servant your Lord. Okay. Secundum verbum tuum your word according to your word in peace. That's the Latin Vulgate and rough translation there, word by word. But nunc dimittis, now you are dismissing. And so this whole passage, this whole message is referred to as the nunc dimittis. Just like all these other early messages in the Gospel of Luke all have their titles, just like the Magnificat comes from Luke 1.46, the Latin Vulgate of magnify, my soul magnifies the Lord. Simeon viewed his physical death as the release of a despot's slave. He viewed his physical death as the release of a despot's slave. We don't know what his life was like. But he viewed his physical death as this kind of a release. The idea is, is that it hasn't exactly been pleasant. <laughs> All right that he doesn't call him the Lord's bondservant, you know, the bondservant of Jehovah, the bondservant of the of the Lord. Like Paul will use that phrase later on in the in the New Testament. But he uses the word despot. In the Greek of verse 29, nun apolues tondulon su despota. Not kyrios for Lord, but despota. He calls him his despot. His his uh, dictator. And that's extraordinary. And physical death is going to be released. Obviously, you know, a master can release a slave at any time. A master can free his slave if he so chooses, release him from service, 
A master can do what he wants with this slave, can sell him, can kill him. And Simeon views this physical death as a release. Whatever the circumstances were of his life, we don't know. How long has he lived? We don't know. But imagine, um, we, we know the pattern of the prophets is that they were ill-treated. We know that they were destitute. We know that the, uh, the Hall of Fame of Faith calls them men of whom the world was not worthy. There's, there's no indication that, that Simeon was any different than that, that he was an Old Testament prophet in those descriptive terms, undoubtedly had a difficult life for whatever reason through whatever testings, whatever circumstances. And however old he is, he's glad it's done. (laughs) All right? However old he is. And we've seen that. We've seen that with elderly, and and especially if they've had sickness, they've had whatever suffering, whatever difficulties in their older years. And, and, and for born-again believers that know that absent from the body is face-to-face with the Lord, knowing that there's no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death, knowing that, you know, I, I think about Joyce Munsell, <laughs> and she gets to get out of that body and out of that wheelchair, and she's with the Lord. What a, what a release. What a blessing. And I think the indications here with this prophet, with Simeon, Can you imagine maybe he's 80, 90, 100, and his body is sick, (laughs) getting older, getting older, and the Lord says you can't die, not until you see the Christ, and uh, doesn't use kurios, he's not viewing himself as the servant of the Lord, uh, the servant of Jehovah, the servant of God, like Paul does, where he's a bond slave. It's the same bond slave. It's the same doulos. Paul calls himself a bond servant of Jesus Christ. But instead of calling him the Lord, Kyrios, he calls him the despot. He says, now you are releasing your bond slave, despot. And that is uh, remarkable. All right? He views it as a release. Secondly, he was promised to see the Lord's Christ he declares that his eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. Indicating that he had a clear understanding what Christ was all about. The promise came that he would see the Lord's Christ. That he would see the Lord's Christos, anointed one. His declaration is that his eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. And this one passage right here where you compare verse 26 with verse 30 helps us to understand what a biblical understanding of Messiah was all about and why it is that the Jewish anticipation of Messiah in political terms was off track was misdirected that the issue was salvation The promise of the seed of the woman from Genesis 3 on has been the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption. But the Jewish people allowed themselves to be distracted with political considerations, with additional things in terms of the Davidic covenant, in terms of the throne, in terms of dominion. Yeah, we get all jazzed up about that, absolutely, and lose track of the original promise, which was a seed of the woman promise given to Eve. 
Though promised to see the Lord's Christ, Simeon declares that his eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. So we have verse 26 compared to verse 30. Now the possessive nature of this is, is interesting because it's found in both verses. Both verse 26 and both verse 30, they both have a possessive reference. Okay? The Lord's Christ. Not Israel's Christ. Not the Jewish Messiah. He's not the Jews' Christ. Okay? A possessive indicates whose it is. Alright? This is, uh, this is my pen. It's not your pen. Okay? You might steal it. And I guess you could appropriate it that way and then say it's yours. But really it's mine. Okay? It's got this nice cross on it. It was given to me. It says, um, Jesus Christ is Lord. This was my Father's Day present for my children. It's mine. And you can't have it. I might loan it to you if you need something to write with. But I'm going to get it right back afterwards. Because it's mine. Okay? Whose was the Christ? Well, the Jews would be very quick to claim him as theirs. But he's the Lord's. He's God's. Anointed one. God himself in the flesh. God himself anointed as prophet, priest, and king. God himself serving the purposes of himself. The Son serving the Father. It's the Lord's Christ. Likewise, whose salvation is this? Well, it's my salvation, isn't it? Am I not the one that got saved? <laughs> is this the Jew's salvation? Is it the Gentile salvation? Is it mankind's salvation? You know, we can, we can claim that salvation belongs to man as the redeemed party. But who's doing the redeeming? And so whose salvation is it? This passage refers to it as God's salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Your plan, your means, your method of saving this fallen human race. It's God's salvation. It's God's salvation. And we benefited from God's salvation. So he says, Now, Lord, now, despot, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Because God is truthful. He's made a promise. His promise came true. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then it goes on and quotes Isaiah, and we'll deal with that next week. I'm out of time this morning. My eyes, my ophthalma, uh, the plural ophthalma, where we get ophthalmology, have seen your salvation. The greatest benefit we can have in Scripture, and, and as dispensationalists, we do a whole lot better than the covenant crowd does, but understanding the perspective on Scripture, okay, Covenant theology views the centerpiece of Scripture as redemption. Specifically, the redemption of man. And it is anthrocentric, or anthropocentric, we say. It makes the centerpiece of the Word, and the centerpiece of God's plan, man. It's anthropocentric. Redemption being the, the underlying theme, and man being the object, and views it as our salvation, the dispensational approach makes the glory of God the central theme and makes it theocentric, centered in God, or more appropriately, Christocentric, centered in Christ, because the Father has determined to exalt and magnify Christ. 
And this passage, I think, really helps spell it out. Whose salvation is it? It's God's salvation, which he's bringing about in Christ. Man benefits, but who ultimately benefits? God benefits. Okay, And so as we dismiss this morning, I'll just use Colossians as a, as a good departure point, give you something to think about. And I, and I think it goes along well with the fact that this is God's salvation, not man's. In Colossians 1, with reference to Christ, verse 13 says, He, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness. All right, are you with me there? Colossians 1.13 For He, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. The Father rescued us, the Father placed us in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But there the focus is not on us, the focus is on Christ. It's in Christ that we have redemption. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, as Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Notice those last three words, and for Him. Why were you saved? For Christ. Because all things were created through him and for him. For his behalf, for his benefit, for his blessing, for his gift from the Father to the Son. You're a gift from the Father to the Son. I'm a gift. See, no man can come to the Son unless the Father who sent me draws him. We are given from the uh, Father to the Son. A lot of these are concepts that we developed out of the Gospel of John. And uh, things that hopefully we're familiar with. All things created through him and for him. So the plan of creation and then the plan of redemption is for Christ. The Father desires to give a body of redeemed to Christ. It's the Father's plan of salvation so the Father can give worshipers to Christ. If the Father didn't have a plan of salvation, who could he give to Christ? A bunch of sinners? (laughs) A bunch of dead and dying creatures? No. So the Father has to have a plan of salvation so he can give redeemed people, glorified people, to Christ. That's why it's the Father's salvation. The Father's plan. All right. I am five minutes long. Let me dismiss in prayer and then we can enjoy the rest of today. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the blessings of giving your son. This is your gift. This is your work. We thank you for it. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.